great to um, to have this Sunday where it's where we're gonna have our AGM after after church, and so we're gonna talk about kind of what we're doing at South Langley Church, and so it's been great actually to be able to talk about Caleb and 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 recognize Rachel and Sylvain and Victory and and talk about Sam and um, remind ourselves that the work of South Langley Church extends far beyond these walls. And so it's just a joy to be gathering together, uh, to be on a mission together, not just for, for this group of people, but for the, for the world. And so uh, it's been encouraging already. Uh, what happened on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago in that garden tomb in Judea? We, we started last week looking at John chapter 20, looking at, uh, the, looking at the Easter story, right? And, and so we, we've been on this journey. We came to John chapter 20 that talks about Jesus uh, rising from the dead. And we said last week that Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he's beginning a new creation. And, and we can get on board and, and, and take part in the new creation. And we can be new creations. And that's really nice if it's true. But we acknowledged last week that, that this story is actually, it's a hard story to believe, that we're, that we're inviting you to believe that a man named Jesus uh, really, really rose from the dead. And we said we're not inviting you to believe in spite of the evidence, but because of the evidence, and that we would get to the evidence next week, and it's next week. So here we are. So if, if this is your, uh, your first Sunday with us, you're kind of jumping in the deep end. If last week you joined us for the first time for Easter, I'm glad that you've come back. Thanks for, for coming out again. And so we're going to take our time today and, and look through the evidence for the resurrection. Paul read to us from John chapter 20, uh, where in, the, in these two little scenes, uh, twice in one chapter... Somebody says, I've seen the Lord, or, or we've seen the Lord. Okay, the tomb was empty, and not only was the tomb empty, but we saw him, this, this man that we witnessed being uh, brutally murdered and dying and being buried a few days ago. We've seen him standing up and walking around and in some sort of a, a remade body. That's a, that's a pretty serious story. That's a, maybe a hard story. To believe. And, and if you read through John chapter 20, if you read through the other discussions of the resurrection in the New Testament, you'll find that they're uh, consistently saying, uh, using the language of we've seen him, using the language of eyewitnesses, they're consistently presenting this story as a story that really happened in history, in time and space. We live in a tolerant culture. And it's not a bad thing, because we're diverse. We're a diverse nation, and we need to figure out how to live alongside each other amidst different worldviews. Okay, great. So that means that we exercise tolerance. Sometimes, for some beliefs, we can say, you know what? We can agree to disagree. You believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. It's, it's private. It's subjective. And there's some value to that. It allows us to coexist. When we come to the resurrection, uh, the resurrection doesn't really leave room for that. 
the resurrection, because, because the resurrection isn't something, you know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, I, I believe that we should pray every day. Okay, well, you can believe that and I can. The resurrection is fundamentally an objective, public truth claim. Did this thing actually happen? And everything rises and falls on that. We talked about this a bit last week. That this is the starting point for every discussion of Christianity. We start here, and then we figure out everything else. Because either Jesus of Nazareth really rose from the dead, and if, if he did, then he's clearly beyond any other human being. Clearly beyond any other human being in, uh, in status, in power, and we need to figure out exactly who this Jesus is and how we can respond to him. We need to reorient our lives around Jesus if he did rise from the dead. If he didn't, let's not waste our time on all the other stuff. If it's just a story, if he was just another Jewish peasant 2,000 years ago, let's not waste our time. And so this is the question. And so what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to say, okay, John, can we take you seriously? Can we believe what you're presenting to us as eyewitness accounts? Can we believe that this thing really happened in history? That's where we're going to go today. And so uh, we're going to look at this idea, this claim that Jesus of Nazareth really rose. He was really dead and he really came back to life. We're going to look at that claim, and we're going to look at it from, uh, from kind of three perspectives. Okay, we're going to look at it from the perspective of science, history, and then the Bible. Normally, we'd, pre- we'd camp out in the Bible, and, you know, when we preach, we-, we unpack what the Bible says. But because of the nature of what we're doing today, because we're trying to build an argument for the resurrection, we also have to go outside of the Bible, because we can't use the claims of the Bible to justify the claims of the Bible that's circular reasoning. And so it'll be a little bit different today, um, but I think it'll be beneficial for us. Okay, that's where we're going. So let's talk about science. Some people uh, would dismiss the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and they would dismiss it by saying something or believing Something along the lines of science has proved that Jesus could not rise from the dead. We live in a scientifically advanced age, right? We, like we, we saw a black hole a couple weeks ago. That's crazy. We're very scientifically advanced, and so we think, you know, science has proved Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. And I'll put my cards on the table and say, I love science, and I trust science, and we should, I don't believe we should discard it. But there's a problem with that claim. Sci- science has proved that Jesus could not have risen from the dead. There's a problem with that claim. And to get at that problem, I need to ask you a question. How do they write Sheldon Cooper's jokes? If, in case you don't know who Sheldon Cooper is, there's this show... Uh, called The Big Bang Theory. Uh, if you don't watch it, don't start. It's, you only have so many brain cells. When you watch Big Bang Theory, they're going fast, okay? So there's this, this uh, one character. His name's Sheldon, and he is a brilliant physicist, okay? Very scientifically brilliant, but socially awkward, okay? And so... Um, 
I'm going to give you the formula for 100% of Sheldon Cooper's plot lines and jokes. You ready? So what they do is they take, they take him, and he's a, a man of science. They, they have him think scientifically. Okay, He's thinking data and experiments and hypotheses. He'll think scientifically about something that's not meant to be scientific. Okay, Like his relationship with his girlfriend or with his friends or how to be a good roommate, something like that. That will lead him to say or do something unusual. Then they add the laugh track like it's 1992. And that's, that's it. That's every Sheldon Cooper joke. 12 seasons, 7 Emmys. <laughs> I don't get it. But the, what's the mechanism for those jokes? The mechanism is we know as the audience that there are things that you're meant to think about through science and the scientific method, and there are other things that you're not. There, you, know, you could say it this way if you want to be fancy. The domain of science does not encompass all knowledge. Science is built to comment on some things, and it does so really well. But there are other things that it's not built to comment on. So uh, particularly, science is built to comment on what is repeatable and natural. Okay? Re it's meant to comment on what's repeatable. You set up an experiment. This is the scientific method. You control your variables. You get an outcome. When, and when someone else replicates or repeats that, those variables, they should get the same outcome. That's how the scientific method works. Can't can apply that to the re resurrection. It's a, it's a one-time event. And then more significantly, science is built to comment on the natural world, or you could say the material world, and it does a really good job of that. It, it's really good at understanding, finding patterns, giving explanations for how the natural world works. The problem is the resurrection is not a natural claim, it's a supernatural claim. And science, and science doesn't have any apparatus, any tools for discerning and understanding and detecting the supernatural. That's not, that's outside of the scope of what science does. So when you say science has proved that, uh, that Jesus could not have risen from the dead, you're actually making a leap. And the leap you're making is this. You're assuming that because science can't detect the supernatural, the supernatural doesn't exist. I want to say you're using the wrong tool to try and detect the supernatural. That's, that's, like, saying, um, that's like saying this song doesn't exist because I can't see it. You don't see songs. You're using the wrong tools. Use your ears, not your eyeballs, right? So science is the wrong tool. And so, again, I, I'm a science guy. But I'm saying for this discussion, we need to set science aside because it's the wrong tool for the job. And so science, uh, science is unable to prove that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. It's outside of the scope of science. So that's science. Now let's talk about history. History, I would argue, is, is a better tool to use for this. 
because science can't really comment on whether Jesus could have risen from the dead. History, we can use the discipline of history to ask the question, okay, did Jesus rise from the dead? Not could he, but did he? What is the evidence that would cause us to believe that he actually did? Now, there, some people think that the burden of proof uh, lies with Christianity on this, on this point. In other words, by default, we're going to believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if you want us to believe he rose from the dead, uh, proving it is your problem. And that's true to an extent. But what you need to acknowledge is that if you deny the resurrection, you've taken on your own burden of proof. And here's, and here's what I mean. Uh, the, you don't have to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but what you do have to do is look at the historical data we have, the, the historical phenomena, what happened in the first century, and you have to figure out another way to explain what happened in the first century that we know about without the resurrection, okay? In other words, if there's no resurrection, then why did these things happen in the first century? So let me, let me show you what those things are. Uh, so we can reconstruct quite easily the thought world of the ancient Near East. That's easy because we have, we have books from back then. And so we can read them and find out what people were thinking and teaching and believing at that time. So a couple of things. Uh, first, in case you were wondering, people back then also believed that people don't rise from the dead. Like in case you think they're just gullible back then, no, they, they knew that people don't rise from the dead. That was not a secret to them. In fact, they actually had... a we can reconstruct their teachings about resurrection and the afterlife from the ancient writings. And so in the, I'll give you a quick sketch of it, okay? So in the ancient world, you had, um, you had two big groups, okay? You had the, the Jewish group and, and the non-Jewish group. For the non-Jewish group, uh, their thought world was very influenced by Greek philosophy, especially Plato, and they thought you die and your soul goes to live on a spiritual plane. And, and so an immaterial spiritual plane. Um, and that's a one-way ticket, okay? They, that was the belief. Within the Jewish world, there were two uh, kind of parties, okay? First, there was a party called the, Sadduc the Sadducees. Um, you see them in the Bible. And, and they believed firmly that there was no life after death, which is why the Sadducees were so sad, you see. Thought about cutting that paragraph? Decided not to. The, they were, the Sadducees were the minority group. The, uh, the majority group within Judaism was called the Pharisees. Maybe you've heard of them. And they taught that there was life after death, that there was actually a resurrection. And, but their belief was this, that at the end of history, at the end of all time, God would raise his people from the dead all at once. That was their teaching. And so in John chapter 11, um, Jesus' Jesus's friend Lazarus dies, and Jesus says to his sister Martha, Lazarus' sister, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She's 
reflecting the that the majority belief of Judaism at her time of her time that at the end of time there would be a resurrection so why this all matters is there were a variety of belief systems we can reconstruct them and none of them really had any concept that in the middle of history someone would rise from the dead and so you have to start asking yourself how within that thought world how did this idea gain any traction if this idea was false how did it gain any traction We can even go deeper than that, because what you see, if you look uh, at the ancient documents, look at the New Testament, look at early Christian writings, you see that suddenly the thought world, right around the time of Jesus, the thought world suddenly shifts. And so, uh, as I said, there were a lot of teachings about resurrection in the afterlife, and they were pretty diverse, different teachings, and also resurrection in the afterlife was not a central teaching. Then you get to Christianity, and all of a sudden, within a very short time, resurrection becomes the central teaching, and everybody, instead of having different beliefs, they're all on the same page. Why? What prompted that change? Very sudden change. You can think about this. Uh, the, these early Christians were all, uh, they grew up Jewish. For centuries, the Jewish people uh, celebrated their holy day on Saturday. And they moved it to Sunday. That's a big deal. This was a very conservative crowd. And that's a big change. The the Saturday Sabbath was tied back to the story we looked at last week. The Genesis creation story where it, it says God worked for six days when he created the universe. And on the seventh day he rested. That's why they rested on Saturday. For them to move the day to Sunday, something really big would have had to happen on Sunday, like something that something would have had to happen on a Sunday that is bigger than God creating the universe. Maybe God recreating the universe, which we looked at last week, right? And so you have to start saying, this historical data that we have, what's the best explanation? If there's no resurrection, how do we explain these things? So that's the thought world. We can talk about the disciples and brothers. Uh, and here I'm, here I'm leaning uh, particularly on N.T. Wright and his book, Surprised by Hope. Uh, we have, some people, some people say, you know what, the disciples, you know, they cooked up a story because Jesus died, but they wanted to keep their movement going. So they cooked up this resurrection story. Uh, we have examples of several movements that arose within the, uh, the ancient Roman Empire And frequently, the leader got violently uh, killed, executed by the Roman authorities for causing trouble. Now, when when that happened, that person's followers had, had two options. They either say, forget it, go home, live a quiet life, keep their head down, or if they want to keep the movement going, they bring in another leader. And, and what we see in history is they, usually they try and bring in another leader. Now, the disciples had a really good candidate for another leader. They had, among the 12 disciples, uh, they had James, who's the brother of Jesus. This guy was well-respected. Okay, history tells us this. He was a leader, well-known. He probably looked like Jesus. And so it would have been very easy for them to just slot him in and say, James is our leader now. Let's keep this movement 
going. What would have been much harder than that is to cook up a story in this thought world and say, and say okay, we're going to keep this movement going by convincing people that Jesus is alive, right? What would have been easier? Slot in James or try and convince people Jesus rose from the dead? Speaking of James, uh, James and uh, also Jude, his brother, they were both brothers of Jesus. They worshiped Jesus as God. They're both credited, each of them, with a book of the New Testament. We don't know a whole bunch about Jude. We know that James was a prominent figure in the early church and eventually gave his life for his belief that his brother was the risen son of God. Have, would anyone ever worship their sibling as God? Think about your siblings, right? You grew up with them. You know the thing, you know the times that they snuck out, right? And they said, don't tell mom and dad. You know the things that they hid under their bed. You know, like the most embarrassing stories of their lives. Like if I were to convince you someone was God, like I, the last person that I could convince you of is your sibling. You know all their flaws. These two guys died for their belief that their brother was God. And if you zoom out to the disciples, there's 11 when you subtract Judas. They, they all gave their, their lives. They lived to spread this message of Jesus. And most or all of them died violent deaths because of it. Which raises a question, if, you, if they cooked up this story, why would they die for it? Last thing is Rome. Let's make a quick comment on Rome. This thing unfolds, this story unfolds within the Roman Empire. And so people sometimes want to argue against the resurrection uh, by saying there was some sort of a hoax. Uh, Let me assure you, the Roman Empire was powerful enough to snuff this out if it was a hoax. Okay, first of all, some people say, oh, they, you know, they stole the body. Well, the... What you need to know is that the soldiers, there were soldiers guarding the tomb, the Bible says that, and they would have been armed to the teeth, highly trained, and I don't know if you know this, but if a Roman soldier fails at his mission, uh, he, he has to fall on his sword. That's his punishment. These guys are not falling asleep on the job. They're not losing the body. And speaking of losing the body, if you're the Roman Empire, and this movement is rising up saying that someone's conquered death. What's easier to keep having to sort of persecute them and, and imprison them and, you know, eliminate their leaders? Or do you just go to the source and say, no, we have the body. There's no record of any body being produced. The Roman Empire would have been very able to produce a body if there was a body. So obviously, there's lots more that could be said about this, but the idea is that there's lots of stuff that we can verify historically that, that would suggest that the resurrection really happened, and it's hard to explain these things if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And so um, N.T. Wright, uh, has, in his book, Surprised by Hope, has a great passage on this. Um, which, I'll, which I'll read. It's a little long, but I'll read it. Uh, this is at the end of his argument about, the, his argument that the resurrection is historical. So here's what he says. 
The empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus are as well established by the arguments I have advanced as any historical data could expect to be. They are in combination the only possible explanation for the stories and beliefs that grew up so quickly among Jesus' followers. How, in turn, do we, we explain them? How do we explain the, the empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus? In any other historical inquiry, the answer would be so obvious that it would hardly need saying. Here, of course, this obvious answer, well, it actually happened, is so shocking, so earth-shattering, that we rightly pause before leaping into the unknown. And here indeed, as some skeptical friends have cheerfully pointed out to me, it is always possible for anyone to follow the argument so far and to say simply, I don't have a good explanation for what happened to cause the empty tomb and the appearances, but I choose to maintain my belief that dead people don't rise and therefore conclude that something else must have happened even though we can't tell what it was. That is fine, I respect that position, but I simply note that it is indeed then a matter of choice, not a matter of saying that something called scientific historiography forces us to take that route. He's saying, it's, it's hard to explain the, the historical phenomena if you subtract the idea of a resurrection. The only reason we wouldn't uh, say, it, the only reason we wouldn't explain it using the resurrection is because we believe dead people don't rise. So science can't say that Jesus couldn't rise from the dead. History, uh, I would argue, and N.T. Wright would argue, that there's lots of history that, that indicates maybe he did, he probably did, and that brings us to the Bible. So we're going to talk about the Bible. Like I said, we can't justify the claims of the Bible using the claims of the Bible, because that's Circular reasoning, what if you don't believe in the Bible? What we can do is take a step back from the Bible and say, does the Bible bear the marks of being, uh, of being a factual account or a fictional account or some mix of the two? Okay, and so we're going to, you can slice this information different ways. I'm going to talk about it like this. We're going to talk about what's excluded and then what's included. So really quickly, what's excluded from the resurrection stories in the Bible? Two things. Uh, Old Testament quotations and theology. So you get to, so you, you read through the Gospels and um, we've, we've been working through John. Right? You can read through the other ones as well. And all along, they're telling the story, and the authors will very frequently uh, pull out verses from the Old Testament and say, Jesus is fulfilling this verse. Jesus is quoting this verse. They, they're always going back to the Jewish scriptures. And, and then you get to the resurrection, and there's almost no mention of the Jewish scriptures. Hold that thought. Then uh, you can think about theology. It's, it's typical uh, within the letters of Paul, for instance, that when he talks about the resurrection, he unpacks what it means. He says, Jesus is risen, and so that means there's life after death, etc., etc. He gives you some theology about the implications of the resurrection. Look at the 
accounts in the Gospels, there's no theological unpacking of, of what it means. What, all they say is it happened. They don't unpack what it means. Here's why that's good evidence. Because it indicates that these accounts that we have are probably, are probably just memories that were formed in, in the minds of the eyewitnesses because they saw them, okay? There's this urgency, this, this, very, this physicality to them. Look, this is what I saw. I don't even know what it meant, but this is what I saw. They don't, if you were fabricating a story, you would go back, like the, you'd go back and you would match the pattern of the Gospels and you would build in some Old Testament stuff. You would build in some theology and unpack it. It's not like that. They just say, this is what we saw. So that's what's excluded. And then what's included? So what, what is included? Uh, first of all, conflicting accounts are included. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have the same, when they talk about the resurrection, they all have the same central message that the tomb was empty and that people saw the risen Jesus. But they, they're different on the secondary details. They're different. They are. They okay, uh, in, in John's gospel, it's just Mary Magdalene at the tomb. In other gospels, it's a group of women. In John's gospel, there's, I think, two angels. In the other gospels, there's only one angel. They're different in the secondary details. Now, why is that evidence for the resurrection? Well, if you study the way that um, eyewitness accounts are established in, say, a court of law, you'll know that, that investigators and uh, and uh, law professionals, lawyers would be the word, investigators and lawyers and judges, and they, they actually expect when you have real eyewitness testimonies that when people take their mental snapshot of this thing that they're seeing, 